Mayberry playing the banjo while Rome burns. I am one of your hosts. I am Marty Schneider. I'm that other host, Dan Ludwig. And uh, today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Uh, we're halfway through season two, and if you remember from last season, every time we go to like the halfway point, we always like to take a little a, a decompression episode, collect our thoughts, figure out where we are right now. Uh, last time it was therapy because the show was breaking us, but. This time, not as much. When we put breaking in the title, we didn't realize who was being broken. But this time, <laughs> we're going to do something slightly different. Uh, we brought on someone who actually kind of knows what they're talking about, which is a rarity for us. Thank you. Welcome to the show, Gabe Bullard, a writer and journalist whose work has appeared in Bitter Southerner. And we brought him on. We referenced him in one of his articles a while back uh, about the history of Southern TV. So, Gabe, thanks for coming on the show with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Goodbye Cornfield County has basically became like the Rosetta Stone of this podcast as we were like figuring <laughs> out what the hell we were looking at. Uh, and then it just kind of became like, oh, no, this is like you, you basically break down this rough hypothesis that we were putting together. And it kind of seems yeah. like uh, the idea of Southern culture and its dispersion and sometimes assimilation and sometimes appropriation seems to be kind of like a constant theme in your works you also read about uh the history of the mason jar uh bushy tales and cookbooks like southern cookbooks so uh thanks for coming on uh and i'm just gonna start us off by you know we'll, we'll just kind of shoot the ship but i'm gonna start off by saying what the hell is this what is this thing that <laughs> that we have dedicated ourselves to because dan and i it's been over a year since we started this project and I gotta say, I don't fully think we get what we're watching just yet. As, as in the the show itself, the Andy Griffith show. Well, as in, I mean, I kind of understand the Andy Griffith show, but what I don't understand is, in the 1960s, how did this become as big as it was, and how did this become the phenomenon that it that it became? And one of the things I've had trouble with is trying to figure out how I was supposed to approach this if I was watching it in the 60s. And why? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And why? Why is this show the one that has like made the largest cultural impact, and not something like Green Acres or uh, Petticoat Junction or anything like that? So answer all of those questions in sequential order, if you could. <laughs> Got yeah. it. I've been uh, I've been writing them down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah, I think so. The Andy Griffith Show is sort of the start of CBS having this decade long run of sort of southern or country themed comedy shows it really built the network there for a while and and i think i'll say this i think the reason why it endured is it's the best of that group i think uh i think green acres does have some real surrealistic moments that are that are pretty enjoyable uh from time to time but i do think the andy griffith show as far as just what holds up as a sitcom i'll take that again because something just fell the andy griffith show as far as what holds up as a sitcom Really, really, it set the standard for a lot of shows out there. And I think as far as what was on TV before that, 
I forget what year it was, but by 1960, when the Andy Griffith Show comes on, it TV was still pretty new. Like, people were still buying TVs for the first time or getting their first TVs. And a lot of the shows that were on, there were a lot of rural-themed shows. Uh, I'm looking at the at the TV ratings right now for, for 58, 59 that season, and the top four are all Westerns. It's Gunsmoke, it's Wagon Train, it's Have Gun, Will Travel, it's The Rifleman. Uh, like, these are all, like, these Western shows, a lot of them based on radio, uh, radio shows even. And there's some game shows, there's some, like, early variety shows in here. The Danny Thomas Show, which spawned The Andy Griffith Show, is in there. And then The Andy Griffith Show shows up and kind of starts overtaking everything. It's uh, It rises up pretty quickly to be in the top five. Uh, it never drops out of the top ten the whole time. It's the one of the only shows to go out on its last season at number one. But uh, by 1962, even, the Beverly Hillbillies takes on number one. And then all these shows created by that guy, uh, Paul Henning, who was a former Andy Griffith Show writer. Uh, he also wrote for The Real McCoys, which was kind of a precursor to all the hillbilly comedies, uh, but never really charted too much and kind of changed networks and stuff. And this guy, Paul Henning, who had been in the writer's room for Andy Griffith for a little while and then started taking on uh, creating his own shows. So he made the Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, Green Acres. He sort of had this uh, at one point, I think it was either Green Acres or Petticoat Junction they gave to him without even a pilot. They just let him start making it. Uh, CBS was just making a ton of money and dominating the ratings at this point. Uh, the only show even to crack the top five that wasn't a CBS show uh, in the 63-64 season that I'm looking at was Bonanza, which is also a Western. But other than that, actually, CBS has the top 15 shows of that year. So they just became super dominant on these on these sort of Southern shows uh, for reasons that, I don't know, aren't really totally clear, except just people liked kind of laughing at Southerners. And I think it was still a pretty rural country at that point. People like the country was urbanizing, but uh, but still a lot of people lived in small towns. And I think could sort of have this idea of see a little bit of themselves in, in some of these shows, kind of laugh at, at the backwards folks who might remind them of sort of a silly neighbor or something like that. And then other folks just kind of seemed to watch it. There wasn't a ton on, of course, but I think people just kind of liked watching that sort of thing. It was escapist. It was uh, it was pretty pretty calm, pretty gentle, pretty low stakes. Uh, it wasn't quite as exciting or violent as a Western or anything like that. Just pretty low-key comedy, I feel like. So something that's sort of puzzled us throughout doing this is we're never really sure. Is this, is this for Southerners or is it for Northerners? Because... We we get that one thing that we read was that uh this was sort of the result of an, an oil rush where uh, Southerners started getting TV so uh so everyone was like rushing to capitalize on that new market but we can never we've we've always sort of been like are we laughing at these people or with these people I think it's a little bit of both and I don't even know I couldn't find much evidence at the time that these shows were thought of as being particularly for one audience or the other. They were just kind of put out there. And one of the reasons that we can get into a little bit later for why they all got canceled was uh, was TV ratings became a little bit more sophisticated and you were able to measure sort of how many, you know, young urban professionals might be watching a show versus how many sort of older folks living out in, uh, in a small town, not near the big stores that are selling the products that advertisers want to put on television or watching these shows. But yeah, I think Southerners were buying more TVs at that point. Uh, the economic prosperity was starting to grow for some Southerners around this time. 
the sort of post-war boom. You had a lot of military base activity in the South, uh, a lot of states sort of passing uh, legislation or offering land that was that was pretty friendly to setting up big businesses, so you had some more money coming in. And so there definitely were Southerners watching it. I think there were Northerners as well. One thing about this cancellation that happened in the, in the early 70s is a lot of people say, oh, they realized all these Southerners are watching the shows and Southerners weren't valuable for advertisers but the tv executives i've talked to who were around then they said yeah there were still there were still a fair number of people in the cities watching watching these shows they weren't maybe necessarily the youngest uh the youngest audience or the or the shows weren't exactly what advertisers wanted to attach themselves to but they had pretty wide viewership across across the country and and seemingly across demographics as far as they could tell at that time and and i think that that was that kind of plays into it. I think with some of these shows, there there could be people who are who are watching it who think like, oh, that's just like that's just like me and my family. I love that. I love this sort of hillbilly humor. I, I think that my suspicion is that would be a pretty small group, and I think most people are either sort of laughing at them or are kind of embracing it if they are living in a rural area, embracing mm-hmm. it as a, as a sort of like kitsch type of thing. Of they understand that you know maybe people are sort of joking about about rural folks, but but they understand that it's that it's all kind of in good fun. That they don't feel really, really like they're being poked at or anything like that. That it's more of uh, sort of a joke by them uh, or by one of their own. And I think that's another big part of it is that Andy Griffith had this reputation as being an actual guy actually from North Carolina. And uh, Paul Henning, hmm. who created the other shows, was himself from from Missouri. And I mean, those shows are kind of set around the Ozarks and everything. So I think there was a certain um, idea, maybe, that these weren't just like big city folks laughing at them if you were in these rural areas. But then if you wanted to see it that way and just kind of, you know, laugh at some laugh at some rubes or something, then I think you totally could. One of the things that's always confused me about this is, yes, Andy Griffith had that massive Southerner reputation and I, he did some passes you know, uncredited that we all kind of assumed. But in the writing room, it was all guys like David Adler. These were all guys from L.A. And New York writing what they thought a Southerner was like. And then that just kind of became adapted to the part where it was what a Southerner was like. So it's kind of a chicken and egg situation I don't really understand. And now I know that the Andy Griffith show is so embedded into Southern culture that it almost doesn't matter. But just a a lot of the stuff that you've mentioned about like it being incredibly low stakes is stuff that we hate about the Andy Griffith show and have made fun of. <laughs> so, so angry. So I, I guess my, my question, how Southern is Southern are we talking here? Because Andy didn't write all these episodes. That's it, true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do, does it matter? <laughs> I I think to a degree, it, it doesn't matter. I Could these shows take off if, if we sort of had this, you know, information technology that exists now where you could see that that most of the writers rooms weren't actually people from from the south or from rural places maybe not maybe that sort of authenticity question wouldn't be there uh and i think talking about examples of outsiders i mean hee-haw which kind of came along and was kind of the 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 acme of all this the the silliest of all these hillbilly shows was created and written largely by canadians even uh who um who really had like never even uh, in I had read both of them published memoirs, the two creators. They're sort of these like variety show fixers uh, sort of known around around Hollywood and New York as being these like expert writers to bring in if you were like 
a celebrity doing a variety show or if your variety show is kind of struggling. And and one of them says, like, basically they had no idea what what the South was like, what country music was or anything. They just knew it was popular and all these sort of Southern shows were on. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, you kind of get that vibe just from the name Hee Haw. Like, it is almost, it sounds like the name of a TV show by someone who is in Canada writing about the South. It, it like, just every, from the word go, it does not feel like a, like an authentic product. Yeah, and the crazy thing is, is, so that show, it's set in Cornfield County, which there's this weird thing where no one seems to agree on how Cornfield County is supposed to be spelled. They had an American, uh, an American producer who, uh, who had been at CBS and everything for a while. And in his book, he spells it with a K, uh, Cornfield and County, both with a K. But then both of the creators of the show spell it with two C's, which is just kind of a weird thing. Like eventually at some point it changed, uh, after they had left the show, they got kind of checked out after a few seasons and, and took off. And, and as it became sort of more of a, more of a tribute to rural life, then it kind of took on this, this funny spelling, which always kind of baffled me because you, I mean, county is a municipal designation. You can't misspell that one uh, <laughs> officially. But uh, but also, it's cornfields, and there weren't at the time the show started. Corn was not a major crop of the of the South. I mean, it wasn't something that people were really growing there. That's a midwestern um, thing. Yeah, exactly. To this day. And yeah, yeah, it's like the the corn. I mean, they may as well be in. They'd be more likely to be in like Illinois or Iowa or Indiana <laughs> or something like that. Um, but I think to a degree, the, you asked what. To what degree it actually matters. And I think this is coming at this really strange time where it didn't matter if it was southern. It didn't matter if it was midwestern. It just mattered that it was sort of rural and sort of country because this whole identity sort of merges together. I'm originally from outside the St. Louis area and in southern Illinois, which has a lot of kind of southern-ish uh, sides to it. That area is called, uh, some people call it the Upland South or the Lower Midwest. The, but it, it's sort of the, culturally at this time, starting in the 60s and and or even 50s and continuing, there's this idea of sort of rural and country merging into kind of the same identity, uh, the same sort of unified idea of what it meant to not be a city dweller, what it meant to to sort of be in that, uh, I think the phrase I use is the country of country music. It's just sort of out there. And and uh, over time, I mean, it, it ends up warping into this idea that a lot of people might call like a real America or something like that, or, or sort of red America or something. Uh, but but it turns into this sort of unified identity that, that isn't so much driven by, is it in the southeastern United States? Is it in the Midwest? Where is it? It's just kind of out there. It's just not in a city. Yeah, and I, I think that really, that that lasts to this day, and it just becomes part of a country identity. And, you know, and this country identity is rooted in essentially poverty and the idea of, like, everything was simpler back, back way back when. We've noted numerous times that the Andy Griffith show feels like the Great Depression, even though it is technically set in the 60s. Uh, and it, I feel like it almost just becomes like a front for a lot of things and i i and the andy griffith show pretty much established itself as just rural any kind of rural or country methodology is better than what those hoity-toity guys up in the big city seem to think about us and it just kind of becomes like almost like a culture war thing just another piece of a culture war and i think that's that's other rural areas adapting the south i grew up in uh rural Oregon in Northern California, and you would still see 
you know, uh, General Lee Confederate flags all around, mm-hmm. which is probably mm-hmm. just pure racism at that point. But uh, I feel like this is just one of those elements that you just adapted. People in other rural areas just kind of adapted southernisms because it made them more country. And Mayberry just kind of got wrapped up in it. That's how Mayberry kind of became like an idealized utopia. Yeah, I think there's uh, I, I think there's something to that because uh, and I listened to a couple of previous episodes and I think you mentioned this thing that Andy Griffith had said that kind of the show was based on it was set in the 60s, but based on his memory of, of Mount Airy, North Carolina in the 30s. And and there's this idea, I feel like of so now when we watch it, it kind of feels like we know it's from the 60s. So it kind of seems like, OK, maybe that's a vision of the 60s, even though. We're watching a 60s version of the 1930s or an early 60s version. And and to the degree that that starts kind of shaping everything, that it's sort of it becomes this unplaceable in time sort of show. I remember watching it. I've watched a lot of Andy Griffith. I I do enjoy the show uh, to a really large degree, but I don't think when I first started watching it, I could have placed at all when it was supposed to be taking place, like when it was made. Uh, I mean, I was a kid, so I didn't know much about television history or anything like that. But I think if you'd asked me, I would have really had a hard time kind of figuring out if it was actually made in a certain period, if it was set in a certain period and made at a later date. Uh, so sort of the timelessness and the regional regionallessness of it uh, combines into this into this really sort of strange effect, I think, which, which is kind of funny because of all these big hillbilly shows, it's the only one that is definitively, or all the Andy Griffith shows, are the only ones definitively set in the South. Like Gomer Pyle, I forget where his military base is supposed to be. I think it's the South. It might be in California. But, uh, but Mayberry itself is actually positioned in North Carolina. Uh, the others, Cornfield County, I mean, Petticoat Junction and everything, and like Pixley and Hooterville, those are sort of Ozarks areas, Southern Missouri, which is, you know, upland South, but not sort of thought of as the American Southeast uh, so much. And I think they just all kind of get that, get that reputation. And, and, and yeah, I think you're right that that ends up influencing kind of the ideas that the people from the outside and people from the inside have about, have about what these, what these regions are. Uh, So we, we've actually described Mayberry as Southern Narnia, a few times where it's like <laughs> the the timeless quality sort of it becomes like this almost like mythological place uh like, like th- this disney version of the south that's unstuck from time and just like almost com- completely fictional and i think you kind of like had a little bit of the same thing with cornfield county where it's mm-hmm. it becomes like this disney version of the south a little bit and what sort of a um a comforting thing that was for Southerners at the time. Uh, yeah, but if if Mayberry is Main Street USA in Disneyland, then Hee Haw's like the Country Bears. Like it's just <laughs> it's like the animatronic. Like, hello, we're gonna tell a joke. Hey, yo, I don't know what I was doing there. I don't know what. <laughs> Do you want to take another pass at that big guy? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So just like a ridiculous animatronic backdrop for Hicks like robots to show up and go oh, yuck aren't you glad i didn't say banana or whatever the hell the jokes are i don't, I don't i've never watched hee-haw <laughs> um, oh man it's it's an experience there's a bunch of episodes somebody went through uh as i was finishing my story i found that uh somebody went through and uploaded a ton of episodes uh 
extra legally, I'm sure, uh, to to YouTube. And before I'd been kind of fighting with the owners of the various archives, or not fighting with, just going back and forth to try to get access to some of these episodes. Uh, it is it is a trip to watch, though. Um, good good trip or bad trip? Like, is uh, it... well, I mean, the musical performances are sometimes really, really outstanding. Um, I think, I mean, the hosts, Buck Owens and Roy Clark, are two outstanding musicians themselves, and uh, and Buck Owens you know, an extremely important songwriter in sort of the American tradition of the of the last half of the 20th century. Um, the show is edited by computer. It was the first show edited on a computer. Uh, and it is extremely fast-paced at times, uh, even by modern standards. I mean, you know, you've been watching the Andy Griffith show. You watch these old shows, and they seem so slow. The pacing is so slow compared to today. But with Hee Haw, even though at times you can kind of get the sense that that it's written for for sort of people um, who are used to that slower pace at a, at a time when it was when there was that slower pace uh, or when all television was kind of at that slower pace. It still moves really, really, really fast and is hard to keep track of what's going on, even with a modern eye, I feel like, which makes it more of a trip in that one moment you'll have. I think the longest sketch is maybe like two, two and a half minutes. And Jesus. so you'll you'll go from like really like there's they'll have like a 15 second break of a joke and then they'll cut to like a cartoon donkey doing something kind of silly. And then they'll cut to like another really quick joke and then a barbershop sketch. That's maybe like a minute and a half long. And then uh, like a a shot of a dog just kind of rolling its eyes. And it's a really strange, uh, strange amalgamation of things. Is this actually funny? Like, is it good? Because this sounds, yeah, this sounds like some one of those videos on YouTube that just like sixteen-year-olds watch when they're really, really high. It sounds like you're describing the horror tunnel that Willy Wonka takes the ferry into. <laughs> like, like it is, uh, yeah. like uh, Gene, like Gene Wilder's face should be superimposed over this, just this singing monotonously while this horrible stuff is happening in the background what what is this thing you're telling us about? you just said like a phrase that would activate his sleeper agent is it actually but is it actually funny like are the jokes good uh he i i that's a I no. don't know that's that a is no. such a no. i was gonna say when i asked like if this show is good or bad you were like you basically did the equivalent of if, if I asked if you liked my one-man show and you were like, the programs are on such nice paper. <laughs> the lighting was fantastic and these seats are so comfortable. Yeah, uh, it's um, it's it's not – it's entertaining in a way and and also admittedly by, uh, by some of the writers or by the creators that not all their jokes were written by them. They were sort of the equivalent of just uh, lifting like street jokes or old jokes from, uh, from, from previous sort of corn pone comedy and things. And there was a, there's a quote in one of the books that uh, the, the creator of the show, one of the creators of the show wrote where he says something along the lines of like, uh, he told a writer, I don't care if Abraham Lincoln laughed at it, if it's, you know, if it's on hee haw, it's on hee haw, or something like that. Of just their willingness to kind of take in anything, whether they wrote it or not. Well, we we've noted a numerous times that uh, so much of, especially early like season one, Andy Griffith just feels like vaudeville sketches, and it was because that's what Andy and uh, Don did beforehand, and it just feels like there was just such a connection to that like form of comedy at that time that 
you couldn't get away with after like 1973, 74. Well, I guess Rowan and Martin's laugh in was kind of that, but it was like the more sophisticated bit, yeah. hee-haw. Like, and yeah, so laugh in was like the direct influence with, with hee-haw. These, uh, the two Canadian creators, they were working on the Jonathan Winters show. Um, and he had a hillbilly character, uh, even though I think he's from San Francisco or at least had made his home there for a number of years. Uh, and as they tell it, I, I mean, this is, it's it's in one of their memoirs, and it's a little too perfect because they say, like, CBS had said, oh, we're canceling the winter show, but we really want you to pitch something. And as they tell it, uh, one, they were in a room, and it was sort of like the usual suspects. Like, they see that, uh, they say they saw Loretta Lynn on a, on a newspaper, and the headline was, country music is hot. And then they saw the ratings that uh, Laugh-In and, uh, and, like, all these Andy Griffith shows and everything were top of the ratings. And as they tell it, they looked at each other at the same time and shouted country variety <laughs> and decided to do a country laugh in. Um, I, I mean, more realistically, like, yeah, I think if you were trying to make a hit show in 1968, you would look at, uh, at sort of, you know, there were sizable country music hits. There were pop country hits at the time or pop crossover hits from country songs. And then the CBS lineup, if CBS is saying, hey, we want you to make a show, uh, the only show the only thing that's beating any CBS country comedy in the ratings is Laugh-In. So you figure like, oh, I'm just going to take that, throw country music on it and like, and, and make it fit sort of the CBS lineup. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, as far as like the, the sort of vaudeville nature, have you guys watched, um, uh, a face in the crowd? Yeah. Oh my God. I currently that- have a poster of a face in the crowd up in my room. We uh, love, yeah, it's outstanding. We love that yeah. movie. We it's, love it so much. That was our season well, finale last year. Oh, great. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that. Yeah, because it's like that – to think that Andy Griffith was known to people like – if you had seen a face in the crowd, he was known as Lonesome Roads there, this just maniacal evil character. And then uh, – or he was known as sort of this country monologuist who you'd see. And because uh, No Time for Sergeants was – yeah, yeah. And had, have you guys watched No Time for Sergeants, his other sort of big movie? I think that's going to be our season finale for this season. Yeah, like that, I mean, and I think he had even said that in the first maybe one or two seasons of, of Andy Griffith, he was he was sort of still playing that character. Like he was playing the, the, the No Time for Sergeants, the sort of hillbilly rube before he decided that he needed to be the straight man in the comedy. And, uh, and yeah, like he, it's really broad in those earlier seasons, though. We're we're just now starting to get into Dad Andy, what I call plaid shirt Andy, and the transition <laughs> has been rough. <laughs> like, it's it's been hard. It, like, it has not given us material. Yeah, yeah. When um when Andy Griffith isn't also doing dumb shit, and it's all on uh it's all on Don Knotts, it just makes Don Knotts's character extremely insufferable, and just Andy Griffith just kind of stands around for large portions of the show, just going like. I don't know. It, so it's for the first half of season two, it's been an extremely weird dynamic. Which actually kind of goes into my next kind of question or topic I want to talk about. So right now we're watching the Andy Griffith show and we're, we're in the middle of season two. It has yet to become all caps quotations, the Andy Griffith show. Like it is yet for us to become the big thing that everyone has latched on to. At this point, if you were watching this in 1962, it hasn't become the giant uh, cultural phenomenon that it is. Uh, and I want to know, at what point in the show's history did 
Mayberry kind of come a, become this like mythical thing that we should, the audience thought we should aspire to. When did it become? Like, I've seen the, you know the "Make America Mayberry Again" stickers, uh, and I want to know when. At what point was it in reruns in syndication? Did it become this thing, this giant, uh, important it, cultural touchstone? Is it when Gomer Pyle yeah. showed up? <laughs> uh, I feel like, I mean, Gomer, uh, Gomer Pyle USMC was, once they made the spinoff, it pretty quickly started outperforming the Andy Griffith show in the ratings. Uh, it was, it rose right up there. Like Beverly Hillbillies was number one, I think, the season, either in its first or second season, like it jumped right to the top. And then Gomer Pyle, uh, once it launched, which I think was maybe around the same time that Andy Griffith started going into reruns, uh, it, I mean, it jumped way up there and was beating the Andy Griffith show until I think it was like 67, maybe 66, that the Andy Griffith show starts rising up in the ratings. Like it was always top 10. Uh, I think maybe seventh was the lowest it ever made it. Um, but it's like, top five top three for its last couple seasons and i feel like then maybe that could have been that that could have been the time more people are seeing it in reruns they're wanting to watch new episodes and it starts kind of getting its due a little bit more i think that might also be a reason why it's the most enduring of all of them like it is the least silly and maybe the most grown up overall because uh gilmore pilot usmc is it has a lot of really silly moments as well. Um, and all the Paul Henning shows are, are absolutely bizarre. Uh, Beverly Hillbillies, uh, Petticoat Junction, Petticoat Junction. I, I don't know. I try to find something redeeming in, in all these shows and something kind of interesting. Petticoat Junction is really difficult. Uh, Green Acres has its moments of just sheer insanity, kind of like Hee Haw that, um, that make it pretty enjoyable from time to time and, uh, and, and worth a rewatch. But, uh, but, I don't know. I think maybe that could be could be it. Is that of all these other shows, they're kind of live action cartoons. But the Andy Griffith Show, it's it's in reruns. People are being able to see it. They're able to watch new episodes when they're coming out, and maybe get this sense of it's not an overly silly place. Like Barney and Floyd and Goober and Gomer and and the gang are all sort of uh, silly, but it's still kind of grounded with with Andy and Opie and Aunt B, kind of the 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 family life. I was going to say nuclear family, but not a nuclear family. Um, sort of a non traditional family mm. by those standards, uh, and that could be it. And that it was kind of more wholesome. It was part of this really popular trend, but but still more wholesome. And as we're talking, I just want to say I would be remiss to not mention we're talking about this representation of rural America. We're talking about this representation of Southern of the Southern United States uh, of the white rural America and yeah. white Southern United States, uh, which just uh, is always the thing I think to make. And I know you guys do it as well, like just to make incredibly clear that these shows are overwhelmingly white and not reflective of the actual when, issues that were happening just, at the just, time. Just when the giant saw, asterisk that hangs over everything we say. When we when right, the black yeah, extra all, yeah. came onto the show, we threw a fucking parade. Like, it was a huge milestone for us. We set out air horns. <laughs> a black person is on the show. Uh, they, I think I think in the entire eight-year run, a black person says a line once in this entire thing. Yeah, there is one non-white speaking role in the entire show, as as far as I know. Um, and he's uh, is he Opie's teacher or someone like that? He comes along like in one of the very last seasons as well. Oh, if it was uh, Opie's teacher, that would be fan- that would 
be I don't know somewhat impressive, honestly. But yeah, I think he's I think he's an authority figure. He's either like a, a, a grown up around the town who people respect. Um, I'm not totally sure. And he might be a coach or a teacher or someone. I mean, he's the I, I have this in my notes somewhere uh, because I wanted to put a piece about this in the article uh, about sort of that moment. But uh, but I think this is one. The article is already running pretty long and it was hard to fit in. Uh, but also um, what made it hard to fit in was I, I mean I would have like cut the word count maybe a little bit or something but there's just not a lot of commentary about it uh, at the time like I couldn't find TV reviews that really mentioned this it was just not something that people seemed to think of I mean there wasn't sort of the TV writing infrastructure that that we have now I think of TV critics who are around uh, I mean Michael Arlen was writing for the New Yorker but mostly about like Vietnam War coverage at that point so like there weren't a lot of serious, serious TV critics, and I couldn't find anything in the archives of anyone mentioning the fact that the Andy Griffith show, this show set in the South in North Carolina in the 1960s, actually featured a speaking role of someone who was not white. Um, yeah, there just was not a lot of sort of commentary or anything on it. I, 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 I guess good. I, I the, the fact yay, that there weren't I riots. Don't... great like yeah um i don't know i feel like it was yeah like it's a it's a really strange like i thought there might be commentary on it as sort of like celebrating that this was that this sort of barrier had been broken but i also don't know how much networks were even thinking of programming to an audience that was not like the white middle class but but a face in the crowd uh was like right before this had Andy Griffith's show explicitly raising money for a a single black woman whose house had burned down and like explicitly drew attention to race issues. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. it's it makes it more insane that they didn't have a black speaking role until the tail end of the Andy Griffith show. I uh, think there was oh, just yeah. stuff you could do in movies that you couldn't do in TV because you had to go I to think... the movies and TV came into your house. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that movies at this time were way more uh, progressive, way more forward thinking. I, to a degree, I mean, there were still plenty of uh, of movies that do not uh, age well, or or in the context of their times, don't don't reflect at all reality. But uh, but yeah, like movies were able to sort of be a leading a leading medium at this time in the way that just television was not. They weren't really experimenting with it. They weren't. I mean, you had. You know, television playhouse sort of things like uh, Patty Chayefsky was writing, you know, plays that would be performed live on television. But you didn't have anyone trying to push the boundaries or successfully pushing the boundaries the way that you did in movies at the time. Really until like Norman Lear shows up in the early 70s. Kind of changes Mm -hmm. everything. Up until that point, TV didn't actually need to be about anything, which as we've learned. I was going to say, it's really strange. I'm just looking at... uh, so I have this list of like the top 10 shows from every season and it's wild just how strange television shows were at the time. Like, uh, I mean, I love Lucy and the Lucy show, you know, kind of broad comedies at times, but still interesting and kind of, uh, I think a shooting for kind of a sophisticated, uh, sort of urban nightclub type of, uh, humor, um, at times. But a lot of these shows, I mean, even the shows that weren't Southern, like Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie and all this, there were just a lot of really strange television shows out there. I Dream of Jeannie is uh, 
we're we're eventually going to start doing episodes about that. We're just kind of like putting it off because that's going to be the year that I fucking die. Because uh, just we one just one day when we were doing this, I was like, "Oh right, that show exists. Oh right, the core premise starts out terrible." Um. Also, my mom has told me to uh that every that Bewitched is a a megaton more insane than the Andrew Griffith show ever does in terms of like regressive ideas and just going completely off the rails and characters doing absolutely depraved shit. So I can imagine I have not rewatched uh or watched at all really Bewitched, but I remember seeing I Dream a Genie on Nick at Night as a kid and I don't know, it it is bizarre that in this decade that we look back at and think of as sort of the decade that everything changed, this like significant shift in American culture and politics and thinking and everything that you had uh, sort of the television lineup was a lot of these sort of Southern shows, two shows with about men who had magical wives yeah. who solved all their problems. It's, which is the, bizarre. The craziest thing about Bewitched is that uh, apparently there was a thing where every single day when the husband came home, she would greet him at the door with a martini. Like, it was like a ritual that she had to do. And she has the powers of a living god. And she's <laughs> delivering him a martini. And that, for a lot of people, was like the big takeaway they were like oh you know my wife should do that my wife should be delivering me martinis and meanwhile she's conjuring elephants out of out of just thin air by wiggling her nose it's it's such a weird thing what people like took away from it um yeah and i remember on nick at night they had like you know trivia stuff during commercial breaks and everything and the trivia about i dream of genie that they always mentioned was how shocking the show was because you could see her midriff and her costume yeah uh and it was like this like very taboo controversial thing and i feel like if the show were around even just a few years later like that would not seem at all like the biggest uh the the most challenging thing to kind of grapple with as you watch this show. I mean, it is I Dream of Genie is basically the perfect misogynist jerk off fantasy. Like essentially like you have a woman and like a nine by 1950s standards like you have a woman and she has a bared midriff and also she's foreign and also she's completely devoted to you and also you keep her in a tiny bottle. She goes away when you don't need her. Like foreign but still white. Yes. Keep that in mind. Yeah. She's foreign but also white. This neon blonde foreign woman. <laughs> it's yeah, it it just like the core concept is so almost like transcendently disgusting. Which it makes it all the more shocking. Like I mean, Laughin, you know, Nixon showed up and everything and they get this uh and they sort of had that countercultural spirit. But uh it, but the Smothers Brothers, it, like knowing just the other uh, the other shows that were on television at the time or that were hit shows, at least, because there were shows that would last a few episodes or a season that tried to sort of push the boundaries that just didn't connect or that networks didn't want to carry on. And the Smothers Brothers comes along and they're making, you know, uh, these sarcastic asides about about the Catholic Church and about uh, Nixon and Vietnam uh, and it makes it seem in context like that or the Cavett show as just being so subversive 
And to the point that when you watch them now, like, it seems like, oh, it's a fairly tame joke. You know, that's like maybe one of the weaker laugh lines on, on a weekend update or something or, or something that would be cut from a daily show script. But, but at the time to think that, you know, you could go from watching, uh, you know, watching Gomer Pyle into the Smothers Brothers is, is just kind of remarkable. Like, it makes it seem like in context that the Smothers Brothers were absolutely just destroying television at the time. And you can, you can understand CBS just freaking out about this show. I honestly, just having like watched a couple of clips of uh, Gomer Pyle UMS, USMC, um, I can't imagine a TV concept more designed perfectly in a lab to annoy me than like a slow guy joins like the country's elite killing unit and then they never talk about the Vietnam War and get into wacky hijinks. Like you're you're not excited for Forrest Gump, the television show, Dan. You're not all about that. But, well, just but only the part where he's learning to kill. Like, yeah. uh, by the way, uh, I we talked about it a little bit ago. I wanna, I will be sad if we get this in a recording and we don't mention it. I want to point out the Canadians, the Canadians from the Red Green Show all the way to Letterkenny have a proud tradition of redneck comedy. And oh yeah, we should definitely you know, give the Canadians their due for that. Yes, I need to shout out. So like there was, I mean, there was intense uh, and and like interesting rural comedy coming out of Canada at the time. And Hee Haw featured this guy Don Heron. He was a Canadian actor. I spoke with his wife. He has since passed away, and learned he was this legend it seems in in canada in his time i mean not being uh from canada not being alive at the time that was sort of his heyday he was on hee-haw he played the newscaster that was like his main character he wasn't on a ton of shows i think he wrote the newscast skits as well but he had done shakespeare in canada he had this character the newscaster character was already popular in canada before uh before hee-haw started and they sort of brought him in because he was doing that and the creators were canadian and they knew him as the sort of country guy who was who was kind of silly who they thought might might fit in and he is outstanding uh his wife sent me one of his books and it was his rewrite of the bible and it is really hilarious he does it in this character uh and there are parts that are just really funny of him kind of understanding this rural character which uh canadians have as well i mean there's sort of this rural rural humor that they that they have a tradition of uh in canada as well and yeah, he was a really outstanding, really interesting character. He's in is a very well respected actor and writer and performer in Canada, and in the U.S. he's known as this one guy on Hee Haw who was kind of silly, and and it just kind of blows my mind. Like, yeah, you mentioned the Red Green Show and everything, which was like a PBS program or at least on on PBS. Uh, but yeah, Don Heron, uh, I think kind of the unsung hero of Hee Haw when you when you go back and watch it, and his bits are genuinely funny at times and uh and he also is broadcasting on radio station KORN which just has funny connotations <laughs> yeah. uh, for the 90s now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Oh wait, 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 wait. Is is that why they might have misspelled cornfield? It could K? have been. It could have been. I think also it's possible in the later episodes. It's hard to find some of the later episodes of Hee Haw. Uh, but I think it's possible that maybe they started putting it on the show 
as uh, with a with a K in the later seasons. But yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm just gonna yeah. say when you're talking about the South and any kind of rural area, I feel like the fewer K's, the better. You don't <laughs> one K is two K's is pretty close to three, and that's that's something you don't want to have on there all, at all. <laughs> yeah, you want to keep you want to keep your K's very far apart. Uh, so yeah, yes. I, I actually had something I want to bring up from the article. Um, you you talk about an episode of the Beverly Hillbillies, uh, that yeah. just the synopsis of it made me almost go blind. Um, where it basically <laughs> oh the Civil War the episode. Civil War episode. Uh, do you want to describe the Civil War episode, or uh, or should I? Uh, I I I'll give it a try. Correct me because it's uh, it's been a while since <laughs> I watched it. Um, it is uh, essentially uh, Granny comes in, and you know, so you have the Beverly Hillbills. You have uh, you have Jed, Ellie Mae, Jethro, and Granny. And Granny comes in, and she is convinced that the Civil War is one not only still going on, but that uh, but that Ulysses Grant is planning a battle mm-hmm. uh, or an invasion of Los Angeles. It seems uh, something along those lines, uh, and. Jed does not believe her. He's sort of the calm, uh, fatherly figure of the show. He does not believe that Granny that the Civil War is going on. He mentions that that the South had surrendered and lost the war. Uh, she doesn't reject or she doesn't accept that. Mm-hmm. Uh, she makes a lot of jokes about Ulysses Grant. Uh, she recruits Ellie Mae and Jethro to sort of join the fight. Uh, there's a joke with Ellie Mae has a lot of pets and animals. She makes a joke about a pet, uh, about one of them joining the Union cause uh, and being sort of dressed up in blue. And uh, and they ride around in their jalopy, uh, waving a big rebel flag until they find what they think is the Civil War still happening, but it's a movie shoot. Uh, the actor who plays Ulysses Grant is, uh, is sort of a petulant guy who's kind of whiny um, and keeps saying that he wants to have a drink. Uh, Granny, <laughs> granny for you, for you shoots him. Grant, yeah. perfect. Yeah, that's that's method acting. There, there is a uh, there is a moment, and I've I've quoted this before, uh, sort of around the house, because he says at one point he's like, "When this scene, uh, for this next scene, I'm going to need a double." And they're like, "No, we have to have your face in the shot." And he's like, "I mean, a double martini." <laughs> that's pretty fucking good. <laughs> that, that's, that's that's a good that's line. Solid. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so they, uh, I guess because it's a family show, uh, and this is kind of, I think, canon to the Beverly Hillbillies, they bake, uh, cookies that they shoot out of their guns, Mm uh, and, and, of of course, course, uh, and Granny shoots Ulysses Grant with, uh, yeah, like, and Granny in the show, like, she and, uh, Jethro and Ellie Mae go to fight the Civil War and help the cause of the South quick, quick and question. end up shooting Ulysses did Grant. They, did she know that the gun shot cookies, or did Granny attempt murder? Like, was she like, take this, a cookie? She knew... They, uh, yeah, she knew they okay. shot cookies. Uh, but she's definitely trying to, like... If not kill Grant, at least knock him down a lot. And she does knock him off of his horse uh, and, like, continue to fire on him. And then they uh, they get drunk together. And uh, and in the end, uh, Jed is on the phone with, uh, I think, Mr. Drysdale or someone from the bank. And, and saying, like, oh, it was all a movie shoot. Okay, well, I guess everything's fine. And Granny and the actor who plays Grant come in 
just completely drunk off like moonshine or something and uh and grant i believe grant apologizes for everything it's a really strange moment apologizes for the northern aggression does he apologize for the civil war like in character as ulysses s grant like hey sorry we didn't let you secede and didn't want you to keep all those slaves or is it just he apologizes for what they did that day I think I for like what they did that day. Yeah. So there's the idea that sort of persists about the Civil War or like this sort of uh, very convenient myth that it was kind of a, uh, a a completely non-racial, like, you know, both sides had their uh, had their arguments kind of thing to the point that like my history teacher in Massachusetts uh, did the whole like. Uh, it wasn't about slavery. Both sides had uh, had uh, viable arguments. Lost cause ideology, like there's uh, like almost a little bit of honor to the fighting of the South. And as someone who writes for the Bitter Southerner, I'm curious about this from Gabe's perspective. Yeah. So what I was I was curious about is like, are the are was this sort of like Southern wave of TV? Um, was this like the or uh, like the origin of this of this myth, or what, or at least like an amplification of it? Um. Where where did this fall in the creation of this like non racial civil war myth? So it definitely comes later because the the rewriting of the history of the civil war came pretty much right after the end of the civil war, uh, and there's a lot of historical documentation around around that of of just kind of statements being uh, being glossed over, statements being ignored uh, that that were very clear about what the causes of the Civil War were and and the racial element to it. I mean, the that that was the center of it. That was, I mean, in a number of states that seceded, that was in their actual articles of secession, uh, why they were doing it. And, and so that rewriting happens pretty immediately after the war. I think, and I can't... Uh, like, I don't want to forgive anyone uh, behind these television shows in the 60s. But at the same time, I I can't ascribe motives to what they were doing. I think, though, that there was this sort of combination in, in sort of their circles, perhaps, of, of not necessarily realizing the damage that something like that could do or how hurtful it would be uh, or damaging it would be to historical understanding toward people being able to you know know the history of their country and and act in ways that might prevent repeat repetition of the most horrific elements of the past um i i I I don't know. I feel like I like I couldn't say that Paul Henning saw the script for this Beverly Hillbillies. It was like, oh yeah, that's 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 what we want to do. I think that they might have just seen it as like, oh, here's a really silly thing to do, and you know, we'll wave a big rebel flag around and stuff, and not understand that they are contributing to this sort of erasure of the of the memory of the real causes of the Civil War and 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 this detrimental reminder of of history. I think that there is this sort of that they just. At, at at best, they didn't understand what they were doing and how bad it was. Like, there's not really an excuse to do something. I, like I feel that. like a charitable reading of it is just sort of like almost. It's it, it it was frustrating for writers at the time that like you can't like you can write about World War II and not talk about the Holocaust, but 
sort of it, it, like it, it's almost frustrating because it's like this massive part of American history and you can't really like do an Indiana Jones of it without sort without whitewashing really because it's so inextricably tied to racism um like uh, something that's sort of like really uncomfortable about like not just this but you know the good the bad and the ugly outlaw Josie Wales like the the civil war is so much more of a fun concept when it's uh, uh when it's when it's a moral gray area um like it, 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 it's a very attractive idea and it seems like it's some like you know if you if you do charitable reading about it it's sort of um you know it's a hard porch light to uh to not drift towards it, it seems like it's particularly weird for Southerners who want to, like, embrace... There's an Andy Griffith episode where they talk about uh, a character whose grandfather is shaking hands with Robert E. Lee. Who else would a Southerner be shaking hands with? Uh, and, like, the like the secession of the Southern states from the Union becomes part of it. And I feel like that's kind of a area of weirdness that Dan and I cannot understand as Northerners, uh, as Yankees. Uh, for just like in terms of wanting to have, I guess, fun with the like worst part of American history or just like, and that's, that's where the like name of the, of the publication that you wrote this for bitter Southerner comes in. So that's kind of my like closing thing is I want to just hear from a Southerner's perspective, what, really the significance is of the Andy Griffith show what what it still means today why people are still trying to achieve Mayberry in their real life yeah I think um and and not to not to totally let you down I think that it is um I'm not sure how well I can speak as a, as a, as a Southerner. I think, you know, like I said, I'm from uh, Southern Illinois, which is considered sort of the upland South of the lower Midwest. Um, Not, it does not have that necessarily the same, the part of Illinois I'm from does not have that same sort of uh, rebel history. It has its own very complex and at times very troublesome history. I did uh, live for a number of years uh, in in Kentucky as well, which uh, a state that never seceded, but also has its own extremely troublesome uh, history and and sort of issues grappling with that. I I think to the degree though, I don't know how much people want to achieve an actual Mayberry life as maybe achieve one where they can just sort of ignore all the problems in the world. And I think that's not even uh, maybe specific to to a region or anything like that. Like there is something appealing to uh, to this world where the outside problems don't don't exist. And I think if you're watching the Andy Griffith show, if you were watching it in real time when it was new uh, and you were white, then it did have that element of this is a place like of of sort of like the the biggest problem you have is you know whatever Barney Fife is dealing with that week uh, and and to the degree that you would want to see yourself in that maybe that would be something that you might want to might want to achieve I think for a number of uh, of Americans uh, 
that was not anything to want to achieve. That was, uh, or just was not a realistic representation of, of life at all. I think, uh, I think it's notable that in the revolution will not be televised. The Gil Scott Heron, uh, track, he mentions, uh, Petticoat Junction. He mentions Green Acres, uh, or makes references to a lot of these shows that are on television at the time as, and he says they won't be so relevant anymore, uh, when, when this happens, because there is this idea that it's not, it's not real. And you can look at that and you can see it as it's not real. And this is the fantasy I want to live in, or it's not real. And this is a fantasy that people want to escape to and sort of unpack the reasons why people might want to escape to it. But I think it's like anything else in, in the history of this region, uh, something that is really difficult to grapple with, but something that if we're not able to grapple with it and not able to sort of think about it in the right context, then that's to our detriment that it's, it's something that you sort of have to be, endlessly aware of and and try to sort of build to the future on that rather than rather than look at it as as an escape i I think it sort of turns into a little bit of a um marty marty gets very angry occasionally about uh the west wing uh and it, it sort of turns into a little bit of a west wing scenario where it's like this this world that where everything like is easy that you can just sort of stick your head into um, like rather than yeah, this idea where like a a, a powerful a powerful monologue will will change minds. That's yeah. The, the the cynic in me wants to say that like part of the reason why the Andy Griffith show gets popular is because of like almost like an inferiority complex because pretty much every third or fourth episode of the Andy Griffith show is somebody from the city, the big city, who thinks they know it all comes in and they learn their lesson that the southern country simple ways are better than their fast-paced big city ways. And I I that's my cynical rationale for it and I feel like I'm being unfair in saying that that's what made it so popular. I feel like I'm being elitist when I say it, but I have yet to be convinced otherwise. <laughs> Have you watched Have you watched the backdoor pilot for the Andy Griffith show? That episode of the Danny Thomas show? No, not yeah, yet. Yeah, that's a bonus it, episode we're doing soon. Oh, it is interesting because that's exactly what it is. It's like Danny Thomas, this uh, you know hotshot comedian from New York City. He's coming up from I think Florida. He's on a drive. He gets pulled over uh, for something along the lines of like there's no stop sign, but he didn't stop. It's a very sort of like. Uh, I think stereotypical what a small town police officer might pull you over for, which even that just to think like that had one connotation then. Um, but, uh, it, it is very much that, that he is like, he's saying terrible things about, you know, calling him like this hayseed sheriff and that sort of thing. And he wants to get out of this Hickville and, uh, and Andy is the sheriff. He's the justice of the peace. He's the editor of the newspaper, all the same thing. He's sort of this, this goofy character that he kind of was in the early, uh, early episodes of the show. And, and yeah, he ends up kind of besting Danny Thomas and it was hugely popular. Don Knott saw it and called Andy. They were friends sort of from the nightclub circuit and said, Oh, you gotta have a, you gotta have a deputy on your show. And, and, and from that point on, they end up giving Andy Griffith this show and, and he develops it, uh, with his team there. But, uh, but yeah, that's exactly what this, I, I mean, I did, I see how you'd say that's a cynical approach, but that is 
kind of how the show started was this idea of uh, the the star of this other show passes through Mayberry and and gets bested as a big city outsider and and then the spinoff became the bigger I hit. Mean, uh, so I'm com- I'm completely vindicated, <laughs> is what you're saying. Why did you do this? He's going to be insufferable. <laughs> I, Take I that! You do, it's it's hard to say though how people how people watch it if they do see it as sort of like um, I I think a lot of those episodes though where it's like the big city outsider comes in and and sort of gets gets confounded by the by the by the hillbilly ways uh, one that's like a, a old trope in in American comedy at that point but also uh, maybe just the easiest kind of way to do a sitcom at that point as well is like, oh, well, we need to bring in an outsider and the best way to do it is somebody who's just passing through because why else would you be passing through uh, or why else would you be in Mayberry unless your you know, car broke down or something like that? I, I, I have compared it to like hospital shows like MASH or Scrubs or ER where like that's a place someone has to go. You go, that character goes there and that sets up the plot and then one way or the other the character leaves. So, so that's a... Pretty solid. Formula. You use uh, in, yeah, in the article I, yeah. Jeff Foxworthy as sort of like a codex a little bit to understand all this. Like you talk about how like he showed up the second he haw went away, and I mean Jeff Foxworthy is basically like Southerner self deprecation, uh, where it's like like hey, we suck, but also you guys aren't better than us. So he does like sort of like I, I don't know. You could sort of view him as like this weird not as well-written microcosm of this whole phenomena. Um, Cause like his thing of like, Hey, if you're a Southerner, you, uh, you go to your uh, family reunion to date. Oh, Hey, if you're a Southerner, you put a gun rack on everything. So it is like aggressively self deprecating and sort of born out of a weird inferiority complex. It's a weird thing. I am still trying to grapple with understanding exactly everything about jeff foxworthy that is a really weird thing to say in 2019 i understand we as a society need to reconcile that thing that happened to us i remember him being on mtv when i was a kid i was like nine or ten years old uh, so he had uh the you might be a redneck comedy album and it was either on that album this was like 94 1995 i think um and i remember because we had just gotten cable recently and mtv was like this thing and there was like uh wayne and garth from wayne's world took over mtv for like a special uh and like there were just it was a crazy time but i remember seeing a jeff foxworthy video on mtv it had to be mtv it wasn't just knowing, cmt no knowing the cable lineup and knowing what would have been on because it would have been uh my brother i think just watching MTV, there was a Jeff Foxworthy video that he made. Either the either this was on his album, his stand-up album, or comedy album, I don't know if it was like an actual stand-up set, uh, or it was made specifically for that, but it was essentially like music and Jeff Foxworthy and him saying like, you might be a redneck, like if you've ever been too drunk to fish, and like if your name is on your belt buckle, like that sort of thing... There was a music video for it. He has another video with, oh gosh, uh, Alan Jackson, maybe? Yeah, who, uh, who was the Toby Keith of his day. Also had a video, yeah. Alan Jackson and Jeff Fox really called the Redneck Games. And it was all about the fact that the Olympics were in the South in 1996. And it was just him joking about 
white hillbillies being hillbillies in in the South. But Foxworthy has this interesting point of like he was a he worked at IBM or something I think before he became a, <laughs> a famous comedian. Um, he is you know really from I, I believe Georgia, but he uh, he was to me he represents sort of like this new South that existed. Um, there's uh, throughout the the south in sort of the second half of the of the 20th century you have sort of military bases and auto plants and all this sort of like industry moving into the south for a variety of reasons there's labor regulations there's affordable land there's tax breaks that uh that state governments are offering or counties are offering that sort of thing like there's all these reasons why industry is kind of moving into uh the south at this point there's accessible air conditioning and uh and affordable housing that's that's more habitable in the in the hotter months um and and jeff foxworthy is kind of to me at least like represents a sort of like suburban south where it's like he kind of pulled his way out of it like yeah you might have like a few relatives who are still kind of country but but he's like the sophisticate but still part of it he, he he's like the 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 reforming of the south like he's the the new coke to the south's coke uh like he you so he, I kind of think of it in like like two terms, and again, it's it's class related because like I I think of this part of the South as just like either a people in trailer parks or b dudes who own like jet ski dealerships, and Jeff Foxworthy is one pretending to be the other because a lot of it, and Larry the Cable Guy too, a lot of it is just like pretending to be poor. Like if you've ever made change in the offering plate, you might be a redneck. By the way, I by the way, I'm going to say congratulations to all three of us for not doing Jeff Foxworthy joke or voices when we do I these mean, jokes. Congratulations! I, I, to I all. think we like as a society we have like an almost like we flinch when we think about the Jeff Foxworthy voice because Jeff Foxworthy's voice was everywhere, and then everyone was doing Jeff Foxworthy impressions all the time, and it just became like the Borat voice effect. You know, Jeff Foxworthy as the like mid nineties Borat is a uh, that's there's a, there's a story. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's perfect. It goes. Uh, that's perfect. Jeff Foxworthy begat Napoleon Dynamite, who begat Borat. Well, and on this whole thing, um, I I forget if this was in the article or not, but there was a quote um, which I don't know. You can read it as coded language, or you could not. Like there was a quote about the Blue Collar Comedy Tour and its reaction to the original Kings of Comedy, uh, where Jeff Foxworthy was like, that was for people who were hip, and this is for people who aren't hip. They go to work every day, and they fight in the wars and everything. And it's like, it just strikes you as so bizarre that he's saying like, oh, this tour of guys making redneck jokes of like white southern dudes was a reaction to the original kings of comedy huh. like film and tour but yeah he what he else was different it. between those two groups yeah. gabe what else <laughs> is different between the original kings of comedy one was hipper than the other it's cool. uh, could you say that one had more soul than the other would that be a, a safe it's assumption cool. this is like a new york times interview yeah. i believe where he says it where he's like that was for people who are hip and this is for people who aren't hip like when he launches so it he, and that, reading it it's just like who would actually like my dog is freaking out right now from that whistle yeah holy he's, shit he's saying that the kings of comedy people don't go to work and don't fight in wars like that is 
a that is a premium just like made out of solid gold dog whistle watching an interview or reading an interview of him with cmt and he says um he says to this line uh we couldn't sell the blue collar movie uh because people in la and new york and new york thought nobody would be interested in it i used to say to them between new york and la there are 200 million people that aren't on the cutting edge and aren't hip and they don't want to be this is what this country is um Oh, shut Which, up. it's kind of crazy that he's characterizing, like, he's, he's characterizing the South as distinctly uncool, when South is frequently extremely fucking cool. Uh, like, but, but he's, he's specifically billing the South as, like, his unique brand of dad at the sleepover. Like, like, he's like, this is for the people that, you know, talk a little too much about their boat. Uh, the, the Hank Hills of America. Uh, wait, have you guys talked about King of the Hill? Uh, all the time. Constantly, forever. What what do you say about it? Oh, that is the best fucking show ever. Uh, we're both. (laughs) Okay, I was gonna say, because I love King of the Hill and we'll, like, go to bat for how, how good it is. We, we frequently just yell at the Andy Griffith show, why can't you be King of the Hill? Please, just be King of the Hill. (laughs) Like... I feel like I feel like maybe for its time the Andy Griffith show might have might have had yes. those moments cuz I have talked to people I remember loving King of the Hill and getting to college and like falling in with like friends who were sort of in the film program and like these like really cool like kind of cutting edge folks who all hated King of the Hill cuz they thought it was just like this silly sort of hillbilly show and I'm like, no, it's this total send-up of it. And I've wondered often, like, if the Andy Griffith show might have been watching it in those times, that. Because I don't think that anyone would sort of think, like, you know, that Barney Fife makes a lot of good points. Like, I think that he would just be seen as, like, this silly guy. Welcome to our confusion game. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the problem that we've been having. The problem that we brought you on here to explain to us. <laughs> useless useless all of you <laughs> i mean me and marty i think are we're coming out of the tail end of it but uh we had sort of a um y- y- a lifetime channel addiction story of just like aggressively watching king of the hill uh that we eventually uh like sort of weaned ourselves off of using letter kenny the uh the the one thing i was gonna say with king of the hill the like it, the like test i i i have have thought of sometimes for like if someone uh and i can bond over a comedy moment is uh there's a cold open to king of the hill when like hank comes home and he's like how's it going and peggy says the mail came early today and he's like huh and then later he's out in the alley and bill's like mail came early today (laughs) and hank says yeah peg was telling me about that (laughs) it kills me so much the delivery of it and like the characterization that uh Oh gosh, um, I, I'm glad you both laughed. Otherwise, I would have to, you know, just hang up. No, no, Jesus! It's such a good show. In like, it's. I mean, the thing I didn't register when I was a kid, I was just like, ah, oh, this is just a show about like people hanging out and they're a little quirky. And then, like, I got older, I was like, this is the saddest show ever put to TV because it's just a hell it's every character is so deeply broken and unhappy and you're it's just them like finding like brief flickering moments of joy uh in like yeah in in just this nightmare life i i Um, don't want the last 10 minutes of this episode to just be like 
quote your favorite King of the Hill moment, but we could do it because like, that that literally that led that remind me of one of my favorite King of the Hill moments where there's an episode where somebody left a couch in the alley and they want to get rid of it before they start to love it, uh, and uh, Hank is on the phone with the like garbage disposal people and he says something like, "Well, I want it taken away. People stand in that alley. We talk." <laughs> And then, well, I don't see how that's any of your business. I don't know, sports mostly? It's just the one half of his conversation with this sanitation worker where he gets so belligerent. And it's just like, I don't know, man. I was just wondering what you were doing. It's so fucking funny. I mean, Um. mine is... uh... Mine is absolutely when they're in a doctor's office and there's just like a moment of silence as Hank reads a magazine. He's like, I tell you what, this Goofus character is a jackass. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a great, like, it's just the perfect distillation of a character to me. (laughs) Oh, God. so I so I found this this Jeff Foxworthy quote. Um, it was in uh, in 2005, uh, New York Times. Uh, the article is "Red State Humor Turns Blue," and uh, Jeff Foxworthy he says that his talent manager, I believe, um, conceived of the blue collar comedy tour as uh, as an alternative quote an alternative to the hugely popular original kings of comedy tour of the late 1990s and then the quote from jeff foxworthy is that was a show for urban hip people but that show left out people who are not hip they're the ones who wake up every morning and go to work and go to war and dadgum there's a whole lot of them out there and it's like i i see what it like it's hard to say like again you like you can't ascribe exactly what he's trying to say here but like it it reads as one thing to me it also seems like he's trying to say like oh there's people in the middle of the country but like the comparison that he makes is really really stark and it's like one of those things of like huge blind spot or coded message because it's like why would the word the word urban in that quote is just sending off so many alarm bells so uh yeah. Something I wanted to bring up while we're talking about Blue Collar Comedy Tour, like everyone knows, like Larry the Cable Guy, obviously a fictitious character, but it's kind of like a, a kept secret just how fictitious he is because that dude is not even a little bit Southern. He's from Kansas. Yeah. No, but there's like video of him from like the 1980s and he's doing like a Howie Mandel character. Like, oh yeah, he's like a really like regular, like in front of the brick wall, like, stand-up special type yeah, of Yeah, no, but they, they kind of, like, really aggressively sold this perception that he is, like, basically that dude. Like, that's him. He's just also, like, doing an exaggerated version of himself. And he is not even in the same, like, state as that guy. And he just, like, completely made up this character. And then they sort of, like, the character was successful. And then they kind of started selling it as like who he actually is to the point that he would be in movies and they'd be like, and Larry, the cable guy as, uh, so they just basically supplanted this, this guy's entire identity with a fictitious Southerner. Uh, which by the, which is also kind of partially the plot of, uh, a face in the crowd. So that bring that, bring that shit full circle. And, and you know, the, he's not he's not the first person to have done this, you know. 
Uh, and he's not he's the first person to do it. And it's not even like completely a rural thing. Well, and uh, um, there's the in the 80s uh, when Pee Wee Herman hosted Saturday Night Live as Pee Wee Herman, um, which is a uh, its own its own sort of trip to watch. Like every sketch is is Pee Wee Herman as Pee Wee Herman. And, uh, and there's no Paul Rubens at all in it. Um, it, but I think, I think the thing with like these taking on a persona that has like sort of that, that like regional history, cause like, you know, if you're doing comedy, that's exaggeration and amplification of, of characteristics is kind of part of it. But I do think like with a character like a Larry the Cable guy, uh, it's easy for me, at least like I see it and I, you know, grew up in a rural area and I see that and I see it as just, endlessly condescending to like oh i bet you'll laugh at this like because it's like it's an easy sort of joke it's a like there's just not there's there's nothing beyond like i'm like him saying hey i'm from this area or like i'm from a rural place and and we're real simple and and here's this thing like it's really like i just don't find that appealing and at times find it really off-putting because it seems like it's like it's just pandering of saying like oh it's funny that people do this here because and you'll laugh because you're from here uh versus something like i think at its at its best like king of the hill or andy griffith show even like when they're at their best are pretty like they they can go beyond that and and not just be like look at these people who are silly because of where they're from and and but if like when you lean into that then it gets to be really frustrating because like you lean into it and then it's like Oh, this is like just kind of condescending and thinking people will laugh at the most base thing. It's it's, it's the comedy equivalent of it's a comedy equivalent of a rock band yelling, "We think Chicago's the greatest damn city in the world" when they play yeah. in Chicago. And I then, get more vibes you know, of like because his jokes are always like, "You ever notice when your grandma farts?" It's more like jingling his keys a little bit, like like hey got hey dipshits, this is funny to you, right? I'm doing a southern accent and I'm talking about. About when your dog takes a shit, uh, like it's it's extremely like condescending. To be fair, that well, worked on me. I'm giggling my ass damn off. Damn it, Marty! <laughs> well, isn't isn't one of his catchphrases like "That's funny"? I don't care who you are or something. Yeah, yeah. That's like okay. the thing that he says, and it's like that. That's like a, I think you could read that as like really kind of you know like. It, Pulling off the mask there for a second of just like, yes, laugh at this. Like, like yeah, you know, everybody's going to yeah. laugh at like, or, or a lot of people will laugh at something that's just kind of like silly or like a goofy noise or something. But like, and then just to say like, no, that's funny. You're allowed to laugh at that. Like there's something, there's something about some of these personas of like giving you permission to like laugh at, uh, laugh at that. And I think like, or giving you permission to, to cheer for mm-hmm. it. Um I mean, I don't know if you guys have watched many episodes of, like, Dukes of Hazard, but they set that up in such a way where it's, like, it's, like, designed to make people cheer for, like, these two guys who are breaking the law and driving around on a car, in a car covered in rebel mm-hmm. flags. And it's, like, they end up being the heroes in this really strange way. Um, and it's, like, what a what an odd thing uh, when you, like, step back from it and think, like... Oh, like, because the whole thing is designed to, like, give me permission to, like, cheer or laugh or something. I really like the Dukes of Hazard, and God, I wish they had literally anything else on that car, because it's such a cool car. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, I really do. I like the Dukes of Hazard pretty much for that. And that's one of the challenges, right? Is that this stuff is fun. You know, when, when Larry the Cable Guy says, that's funny, I don't care who you are, he's, like, 
he's making himself kind of a populist, really. He's you know saying, I'm making jokes for everybody, but especially certain people, right? Right? And the fact that you mentioned that the whole blue-collar thing was literally just a reaction to four black guys having a comedy movie. Um, it just puts it in such a weirder, shittier context. And I didn't think there could be a weirder, shittier context for Larry the Cable Guy's existence. I should point out, I do really love the other two guys on that tour. I like Bill Ingvall and his, like, dumb, dopey dad humor. And I love Ron oh. White, who is, like, he, he never really seemed like he fit in with the other three dudes Yeah, anyway. Ron White, uh, aggressive, was like, I'm not a fucking redneck. I'm from a city. Uh, I'm just doing yeah. this because they're yeah. paying me. Uh, but, yeah, Ron White, fuck, like, still rules. Bill Engvall, um, probably doesn't hold up, but me and my siblings would, like, piss ourselves laughing watching him. Uh. Dorkfish, the Dorkfish bit is still funny to me. <laughs> oh, gee, I vaguely remember that. The, yeah, the Blue Collar Comedy Tour was a really, really weird phenomena. That never ended. We're still in... The, Are that you still time. doing it? I'm just saying, the Blue Collar Comedy Tour is just our entire life now. That's that's just how we. It was the now. peach. Didn't they? Did they have a Netflix special? Did they? Yeah, they did. did they they have did some, very recently. They had yeah. that shitty movie yeah, Delta like, Farce too. Uh, I think it was the Blue Collar Comedy Tour was like sort of a petri dish dish for an idea that eventually became a pandemic. I mean, Larry the Cable Guy isn't is he in he's in all the Cars movies, right? I yeah. think. Yeah, like, this huge Disney franchise embraced them. he did uh, the Cars movies and then retired to a private island somewhere. Uh, he just, like, owns a small country now. And and just thinking of, like, how they say, like, oh, this is a reaction. This is for people in, like, the middle of the country, that sort of thing. It's, like, it it is this way of saying, like, it, it's amplifying a, a maybe, like, it's amplifying an unhealthy reaction to something, I feel like, of saying, like, oh, I feel like this isn't for me, therefore I am, like, of this type and need to make something specifically for, like, for others and, like, use that as, like, an, as an alternative identity that's placed in opposition to this. And I feel like that's a, like, I, I mean, you know, all all sort of, like, media and, and making a living is, like, finding an audience and 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 producing something for them, but like to produce it out of this like adversarial nature, or at least to frame it that way, doesn't seem like the, the healthiest thing. It's just such a common sort of overreaction, right? That those people, those people over there, wink, wink, they got one thing, they got one thing. And therefore to counterbalance that we have to make our thing. And it has to be a very big thing. It's I'm going to have my own theme park with hookers and blackjack. Like it is kind of like, Oh, I'm not allowed in here. Fine. I'm going to make my own thing. Except that no one said you aren't allowed in there. Like you, they, you could go see the Kings of comedy in Des Moines, Iowa. If you, well, it is sort of like them saying like, Oh, I'm not cool. Well, fuck you. I'm going to make my own cool. And it'll be better than you're cool. Cause that, but it'll be anti-cool, yeah. right? It'll just be embracing our stupid, like, dorky We're going to make my 1990s pager kick ass with the Blue Collar Comedy Tour. All right, I think that's a good point for us yeah. to wrap up. Um, <laughs> what time are we at? <laughs> Gabe, where can uh, people find things you've done and uh, people get in touch with you on the internets? Yeah, you can go to uh, GabeBullard.com uh, and links to, you know, Twitter, uh, 
stories that I'm working on, that sort of thing, are all are all up there. Awesome. All like nice, like concise directory. You don't have to go through a whole like routine yeah. at the end of everything like we do. <laughs> Gabe, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. This awesome. is great. Appreciate it. And that's it for this episode of Breaking Mayberry. Thanks again to our special guest, Gabe Bullard, whose work you can find at the link in our show notes. Don't forget, if you want to get in touch with us, I'm on Twitter at Schneid Remarks. That's S-C-H-N-E-I-D Remarks. Dan is at The Luds with two Ds. We're both on Twitter at Break Mayberry. Facebook.com slash Breaking Mayberry. We are also Breaking Mayberry on Instagram. And our email is BreakingMayberry at gmail.com. If you like the show and you want to support us with those dollar dollar bills, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash breaking mayberry and if you want to support us without those dollar dollar bills you can always like subscribe rate review our show on the podcatcher of your choice but especially on apple podcasts the music you heard at the beginning of the show was max ludwig on twitter at sleep talkie and the music you're about to hear is appalachian coal mines by the band ask again thanks for sticking with us next episode we'll be back to doing episode recaps and we'll see y'all down at the fishing hole (laughs) 